So hello, welcome to my new podcast. I'm Gina and I want to make a podcast about me meeting interesting people and just talking to them. So today we have Jeremiah with me. Hello, hello. So why don't you introduce yourself, Jeremiah? I think I will. Uh, thanks, Gina, for, for letting me do this. It's really fun. I'm, I think it's really cool that you're doing this podcast and can't wait to hear from some of the other ones. It looks like you have some cool guests coming up. Yeah. So, me, I'm from the United States, and I moved to Sweden in the first time I moved in 1998. Um, I met my wife in New York City. She's Swedish. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of getting married to get her a green card so she could stay in the U.S., <laughs> we, thought, <laughs> we thought, hmm, maybe that's not the best way to begin a marriage, you know, for some paperwork. <laughs> so, we decided, hmm, well, let's try Sweden because you could come to Sweden um, as, as a boyfriend and get permission to live and work. For forever or what? You would get on a path uh, where you could move towards permanent upholstand. So okay. you, you could become a permanent citizen. Yeah, okay. or, or, or a citizen. Because me as a German, I after s seven years here in Sweden, I can, mm -hmm. can get the Swedish, uh, what is it called? Medborgerskap. Uh, um, oh, nice. <laughs> so you could vote. Exactly. Yeah. How was it for you? I think the rule was 10 years. Okay. Because I tried to vote um, in some elections a while back, and I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I had to go in and ask, and they were like, nope. Yeah, you can't, but can you vote for, like, the local stuff? I think I was able to vote at the local level, yeah, but yeah. not at the national level, yeah, yeah. and that's what I was interested in. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so that didn't work out. But I, I think I can become a Swedish citizen today. You know, I know I travel on this passport that has this special visa put in. Mm -hmm. It's my American passport with the okay. Swedish permanent. And whenever you go through, when I go out of the EU and come back into the EU, they always ask me, okay, what are you doing here? Your American passport, we can't <laughs> let you in unless you've got some reason to be in Sweden. I show them that. But it's really old now. And it's not that it's expired, but usually most people don't carry that around with them. Yeah. That passport I have it in is expired. It's all punched up with special holes because the State Department <laughs> uh, says that it's no longer a valid U.S. passport. So I have two. Oh. And then every time I come through the border here at Landvetter, the airport, they say, hey, time for you to get a Swedish passport. But I never do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, so, time, every time I, I want to get something from the uh, from the mail, they ask me, do you have a Swedish ID? And I, no, I don't, but I'm supposed to be able to get it with my German ones. <laughs> uh, do they let you have the stuff? Yeah. Because they don't for me. I give oh, okay. them my, my credit card and that nothing works. Jesus. So I had to go and get a something from Skatveket, the uh -huh. tax authorities. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, so, what did you do before? Before you like moved to Sweden? <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, I was a a farmer. Nah. No, I <laughs> I uh, I I dropped out of college to become a painter in New York City. I was an, an artist. Okay, I tried to become an artist. So I left college before I was finished to find my fame and fortune in New York, and I didn't find either. <laughs> so. <laughs> After a few years, I guess maybe I was in New York for about 10 years. And towards the end there, I went back to college to get my degree mm. so I could get a real job. And I got a job at the Museum of Modern Art, and that was fun. But when I went back to college, computers had changed a lot. The internet was much more prevalent. So this was like 96 or so. And all of a sudden, it was the internet thing. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what the hell is okay. that? That's so cool. So I, I really got into web pages, web design, and, and stuff like that. And that's where the computerizing, computering 
really kicked off for me. So have you been a web designer or, or what? Yeah. I mean, I, I played around with HTML, and then I taught myself later on how to use Perl. Ah, and there cool. was back in the day, in yeah, the olden yeah. days, CGI and Pearl was the way you before did web PHP development before so PHP, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's that's what I did. Oh, cool, cool. But I heard you you've been uh, cooking in uh, New York also. Yep. When I left college um, and went to move to New York to be an artist, I couldn't make a living being an artist, so I cooked in restaurants. And that was a lot of fun. I cooked in some nice ones and some bad ones, but uh, yeah. <laughs> For how many years? I did that. I, well, I started, uh, my first cooking job was when I was 13, or 16, sorry, when I was 16, Ooh. a summer job. Um, so I did it on and off for, I don't know, maybe I've been cooking for about 20 years professionally. I cooked for a long time, made money during college That's and stuff like that. Time, yeah, yeah, did it for a long time. And yeah, it was a really tough job. It's a job for young people. Mm. Um, and you have no private, you have no social life, you know, I worked seven days, not seven days a week, but six days a week. Most of the time it was 10 hours a day and sometimes it was 12. Jesus. Yeah, it was really, it's really hard. And money wise? Money's okay. I mean, you, you, the thing is, is that because the conditions for cooking are really tough in the United States and mm. it's actually living in New York, there are a lot of Hispanic people who okay. will work really hard for very little money so it was, um, the competition was really tough you didn't make a lot of money I see, I see. at the better restaurants of course you know they'll pay a little bit more but people in the, the good restaurants they'll work there for free mm -hmm. you know there's a, a lot of people maybe they're rich and they want to learn how to cook at a fancy restaurant and now <laughs> you can actually take courses where okay. you just go into some place like boulet or things like that in fact in france the you know, a lot of the best restaurants have just brigades of people working for them for free Jeez. because they can put it on their resume or because they're just interested in it. Yeah. And they make their money somewhere else and yeah. they want to learn how to cook in a fancy restaurant and they do it. So it's, there's no shortage of labor in the restaurant <laughs> industry, which means okay. that wages are kind of low. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, so let's go into this big topic <laughs> we have today yeah so free and open source software how yeah. did you get why i guess you you've been a web designer or web master or something and they obviously when you write pearl and html you obviously want to see how other people do it so so how Absolutely. that's how i learned it actually really that's a great thing about the web where everything is open source at least html css javascript everything mm -hmm. is open source per default not like open source open source but the source is open so you can exactly. go into the show source and then just look at in into everything and you can learn about it so that's how i learned actually how to okay that's exactly yeah. how i learned and you know, if, if you wanted your web pages to have some a tiny bit more functionality, like you wanted to send a mail, mm. for example, you would Google that and say, like, okay, well, here's Matt's uh, web scripts. And then people would say, don't use those. They're buggy. And <laughs> so I started to get into Perl that way because people rewrote some of these old-fashioned yeah. yeah, yeah. CGI scripts. And so then I just got this Perl bug. I was really into it. And Perl is actually really an open source, open source project through and through. Larry Wall was you know, big into open source. He he played a major role in its formation. Mm. Um, Perl is really old. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. And they have something, Perl itself is licensed either under the GPL or the artistic license. And the artistic license has actually 
been through court and been shown to be a valid commercial license. Okay. So it's it's actually quite a strong one. And in conjunction with the GPL, it means that, you know, Perl is free software, always has been free software, okay. and has really contributed a great deal to to open source in general. And that, you know, combined with Apache, all of a sudden you have a very powerful system. You know, you can host internally uh, a web server, Perl scripts for functionality, and then HTML yeah. for presentation. Um, when the database came along, when MySQL was available, then all of a sudden oh, yeah. people had these LAMP stacks, and you could do amazing things with them and replace your file servers. And, and as that was all coming about and bubbling up, I just sort of surfed that wave and, and, okay. and followed along because there was so much documentation. There was so much, there was a huge community. Yeah. And you could learn so quickly and so easily. You know? It's super big, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never took a course in Apache. But you can you can learn how to configure it because their exactly. documentations are so their documentation yeah. so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, so that's how I got into that. But I would say now you're like a free software evangelist almost. I hope so. That's what I try and be. <laughs> <laughs> so how how did you? But because many people use open source, obviously, right? But how did you get into the evangelism? So working with it and and like being being out there and, and promoting it. How yeah. did that happen? That actually happened because I moved to Gothenburg. Um, amazingly enough, in Gothenburg, there are a couple people, well, at the time, let's say about 2004 when I first got here, uh, my second time, there were about three guys who were extremely important in the Free Software Foundation Europe. And one guy was named Matthias Klang, and he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He's now moved to the United States. He was very open with, uh, or very helpful for the Creative Commons stuff. So, and I helped them with a web page or two. So I got to know him, work with him a little bit. <laughs> then there was Jonas Ergbay, who is actually um, the chief administrator for the Free Software Foundation Europe right now, and has been involved with that group very long. And then Henrik Sankleff, who also is a board member of the Free Software Foundation Europe. And through those guys, there was sort of a, a free software team in Sweden, a community in Sweden. And... You know, we talk about this stuff, and I would follow along with them to FOSDEM and to other conferences. And just, you know, through talking and discussing it, a lot of it rubbed off on me um, through osmosis. And, you know, it it became something I was was really interested in. And these guys, you know, I mean, they they brought Richard Stallman here. They... They were deeply involved in the case against uh, Microsoft. So they knew uh, the lawyer, Carlo Piana, um, who is also... Uh, part of the Free Software Foundation Europe, he's you know is important in the legal network. That is a a group of lawyers that talk about free software. So, just being involved in all those things made me more of an evangelist because these people really cared about it, and their enthusiasm rubbed off on me. <laughs> and you know, I just got deeper into it. And as as open source has become more important, there have been more opportunities for somebody like myself yeah. who knows a little bit about the licenses and can talk with the experts who do know yeah. and sort of can shuttle back and forth between those two communities. You that's know? true, yeah. So that's that's how it came about. It's almost completely by accident, to be honest. <laughs> but that's the best way to do it, I guess. <laughs> then you know you're in for the thing and not just like... Exactly. I mean, I, I know that I really have a passion for it, but I have no idea what I'm doing. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just like making this shit up. Like, but oh. because 
would you say you are a programmer or actually not really? Because I don't see you programming that much. No, I don't. I mean, I really love to do it when I get the chance. And I think it's like a lot of guys here. You know, I, yeah. I see my friend, so we see Eric sitting down or, or Joachim or yourself. You know, yeah, when those you, are the guys who work together with us at Pelagico. Right. right. <laughs> our colleagues. So like when I see our colleagues sitting down getting to write code, like, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I'm getting to write code. You know, they're so excited. Because a lot, you know, to be quite honest, a lot of times working with free software means that you're really an integrator. Yeah. You're, you're not a programmer. You don't, it's so rare that you get to open up a terminal with a blank page and just right at the top, you know, the include files you want or whatever it is. It just doesn't, that it doesn't so happen true. that much. <laughs> and my background, I got, after 9-11 happened, I was in Boston and, and uh, that was really weird. After that happened, I, got, I was laid off because um, a lot of businesses just, everything changed. Yeah. Um, and I was laid off. So I went back to school and I got a system administration program. So I've, I have a background in system administration. So what kind of school is? This was Boston University corporate education. And this was yeah, exactly. <laughs> so sad. It's like, what does it program you to be a corporate robot? <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, but yeah, after, I did that before I came to Sweden. So I did have a background in Unix, and I, of course I played around in Perl and HTML, and so. But I would never really call myself a programmer. No, you know, I mean, I, I like to think I know my way around Perl, but. I'm kidding myself. <laughs> uh, that is, yeah. Sad it's not but only true. you. It's not only you. No. So, so I have here on my list. What is the difference between free and open source software? Because for me, for a really, really long time, it was the same thing mm. until I read some. Some comments from Richard Stallman, yeah. where he just explained it to me, and it just opened my eyes. Yeah, it's yeah, it's perhaps you could just elaborate on that. Uh, you know, I'm gonna say the same thing. He obviously, I think he's very eloquent about it, and I think he makes the definition really clear. Um, But for listeners who don't know, who what, don't know, yeah, well. Um, For me, the difference between uh, free software and open source is, is that free software allows you those four very specific freedoms uh, to use, copy, modify, and distribute software, whereas open source just maybe lets you look at the source code. Um, it doesn't necessarily gives you, give you the right uh, to modify it or to distribute it further. And even if it does, it doesn't often have the power of copyleft, which I think is the real innovation It, okay. It's copyleft. That means that, you know, the the value of your contribution uh, to something like the Linux project remains with the project, mm. um, and can't be taken behind a corporate firewall and turned into a product that nobody else can share. I, like, I think, for example. Well, I, I think that if you take a look at BSD, the FreeBSD, for example, or the other BSD oh, yeah. distros, yeah. That, that's a tremendous operating system. I mean, why hasn't it exploded like Linux? It has a longer pedigree. It's equally secure. It has you know, as many technical refinements as you might want to find in Linux. Well, why aren't we all running around with FreeBSD devices? Well, we are, but one big company... Apple turned FreeBSD into Darwin, and they mm. use it as the basis for um, their systems. But, but Darwin is still Darwin is open source, absolutely. But the, but the value that's added on top of it is not capturable through copyleft. Mm. So you're not getting the magic secret sauce in Darwin. 
So how is Darwin different from Linux? Because for, you can take Linux as your base and mm-hmm. then put stuff your stuff on top of it and then sell it and never never give the source code your source code away. Isn't that what what Apple does also? Not really. For example, let, let's say you take Linux um, and you make a silicon. You're a silicon vendor and you take Linux and you write a driver for it. Um, yeah, you can make a binary driver and put it with Linux and then sell your product and then nobody would get the benefits of it. Yeah. But what happens is also that there's a huge use um, through that driver and hopefully that will improve Linux in general. So you do get some benefits even with proprietary binary blobs in the kernel. But more often what happens is that people want their, let's see, networking stack to be effective. So they make improvements to the networking stack, and that gets back into the Linux kernel. Mm -hmm. If you contribute that to Darwin, Mm -hmm. well, you don't know if you're going to get that back when Darwin is released again. Wouldn't, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you make, let's say, say you do an implementation of IP6 in Darwin. Well, why would Apple want to maintain that if it competes with their own IPv6 implementation. In the Linux kernel, the decision is made, okay, well, this is this the best technical decision? Is it secure? Is it safe? Is it the right thing it's to have? It's not a business decision. It's, it's not a business like... decision. It's more technical. But okay. Darwin still, I think, is very much steered by business decisions. Open SSA, open uh, BSD is not. That's by security yeah. decisions. Free BSD is not. That's all about you know, being the world's best web server. Mm. But Linux is much more flexible than that, and I think the reason for that is that it's got copyleft built in, baked in, because they use the GPL. So that's what I think is the difference. Copyleft. Copyleft. Okay. Cool. And but on on this topic, TiVoization, Mm. (laughs) that's a really nice one, I guess, because we didn't have uh, with GPL version two. And I guess two dot one also. We didn't have uh, the possibility to 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 tell the people who use our code to to give it to their users. That first came with GPL v three, isn't it? Um, I think it really came with. Um, it was really part of the GPL in the beginning, but what happened with Tivo was they're a real company. I think they still exist. They put a an encryption key on their software image so that when the TiVo when the TiVo box booted it checked if the key was there and if the key wasn't there then you couldn't boot so if you wanted to change your software you would have to change the hash sum of the image mm-hmm. and then the key checks the hash sum and says oh different hash sum no. i'm not going to boot so what happened is that even though they used the GPL, even though they were using Linux, and even though they allowed you to change the software and gave away the source code, yeah. they didn't allow you to change the source code on your device. And then it's kind of useless. <laughs> yeah, you're renting it. Yeah. That device belongs to someone else. Yeah, yeah. Even though you may have written the software, yeah. and that software may have your copyright. You wrote the software, the software belongs to you, you bought the box, the box belongs to you, but you can't change anything. Huh. But I think that's that is pretty uncool, actually. 
Yeah, I guess most of the people don't care because no, sure, many don't care. But they people don't like you and me, we we do care. <laughs> yeah, but there are a lot of people who do care actually, yeah. and and when you choose to release your software under the GPL, that's a sign that you do care. Yeah, that's and, true. Yeah. And many people were who write software for the, under the GPL were quite upset, and so you know this anti-tivoization clause got brought in. And it, it is an issue for a lot of companies today. Um, I, mm. I don't think that the Free Software Foundation is really particularly worried about that. You know, no, no. you know, TiVo, in their eyes, did something wrong. And I, frankly, I agree with them. What happens, though, when your embedded device has to be certified by an organization as safety critical? Mm. That's tricky. All of a sudden, you really don't want users to be downloading software onto a safety-critical device. You know, what if it's your pacemaker? You really don't want somebody hacking that or playing with that. So, But why, why not, actually? Because yeah, if they do it to themselves, they can shoot themselves, they can hang themselves. So. Sure. Well, with a pacemaker, yeah, they can hurt themselves. But in a car, they can kill others. So, But isn't it like with if you tinkle with your brakes, mm -hmm. isn't it the same thing? It probably is very similar, yes. Because you can kill people by not doing it right when you when you forget to... to Absolutely, and, to and that something. happens. Yeah. And people do actually get these small MCUs, these engine control units, for example, and they change them around so that the fuel mixture is different, so they bring in more oxygen, yeah. and they soup up their Porsche, but they release tons of black smoke into the atmosphere. Okay, that's not that big a deal. But at the same time, you know, If a car maker does this, if a car maker makes something that is inherently unsafe, they will get sued. But if they inherently defeat the environmental policies and procedures for a state government, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. So they have to at least certify and ensure sure, that, those, that it's they safe. can still do that, can't they? I don't quite understand. Well, the, well they the can't. For example, often you certify a device. So let, let's say you have, um, yeah, you, you certify an embedded device and all the software on there is running and the CPU checks at boot time from usually what they use is a hardware security module, HSM. And this HSM is tamper-proof and inside it holds an encryption key. Okay. So if anybody were to get this actual device and try and change the encryption key, the device would break and render itself useless. So that's how... That's the kind of strict security that's required for this kind of certification, so that you have this HSM, you know it's tamper-proof. Mm -hmm. That means that when you boot, you've certified it with this key, and now you have a chain of trust that goes from the literally from the silicon all the way up to the end-user application. I see. Compromising that chain of trust by giving away the opportunity to install software on that device renders the safety certification obsolete. So like in airplanes and stuff like yeah. this. Yeah. Airplanes do it a number of ways. I mean, they use, you know, you can log into a jet engine with secure shell. SSH <laughs> will allow you to do that. Of That's course, nice. <laughs> they're using they're using a proprietary version of SSH. Okay, something that's that's written, um, you know, by a company and copyrighted by a company. Okay. Um, and then airplanes go ahead and do two redundant systems. So you have different systems from different suppliers. And that's what they're trying to do is make sure that you have a fail-safe, oh, obviously. Um, but so it's that safety is more, as opposed to, say, security. But you need both. Mm -hmm. And in many systems, uh, security and safety require encryption keys. 
and they require that that you know not get changed around. I mean, we have EFI nowadays, so we we have a bootloader on your on your desktop that does the same thing, that checks to make sure that the key is there, and will only boot things that are properly signed. Why? Well, because what's, what's, what's because the reasoning behind it in, on a desktop? It's system? a vector for attack. Hmm. I mean, you can also use that to check that you've got a correct copy, yeah. but it really is a vector for attack. Hmm. It allows you to boot an operating system that can take control of your of your hardware, yeah. and then you're in big trouble. So, you know, I mean, the FreeSoft Foundation, too, they, they like this opportunity to be able to encrypt mm -hmm. uh, um, systems. What they want to do is to make sure that if you are using open source software, Linux software, or, sorry, GPL'd free software, yeah. they want you to be able to change the device that that comes on. Yeah. But I think that that's a challenge when it comes so to safety So would it be possible if they just... It's, so if you would send them the binary and they would like uh, sign it and give the the key to f to you or something? Yeah, uh, that may be a possibility. I mean, you can imagine that um, people would create app stores where they would sign things for them, mm. um, like Apple and Google does. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if car companies plan to do that. Mm. I think there's probably, to be honest with you, a mix. Many companies would like to to keep these devices as closed as possible to create these walled gardens. Sure. Um, I mean, that's a commercial opportunity. That's okay. In, in my opinion, it's okay, but just don't use our code. <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. That, that's the way I feel. What is the difference between GPL and LGPL? I never got that quite. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I... I think of it this way, is that the GPL, uh, the GNU public license, is better for applications and end-user programs, where the LGPL, which is called the lesser GNU public license, mm -hmm. is better for libraries. In, I think that if you look at the LGPL, it's much more flexible in many ways. Okay. Um, even V3, because when they built Tivoization, mm -hmm. they also made the GPL... Um, in GPL v3, they also made it more like the GPL in that sense that you can modify it. You can modify the license itself. Okay. And your ability to modify this license, and particularly the LGPL, can allow you to transform that license into something completely different. So you can take out the anti-TVOization clause from, v from GPL v3. Okay. So, so you can you literally say, I give you... This software under the LGPL v3, and at the same time, I grant you an exception to section 6, which is the anti-tivoization clause. And so now you can use this software under the GPL v3 without having to tell anybody how to install the software on the system. I see. And there's actually, you know, this has been studied by lawyers. There's actually a little snippet of code out there that, um, you know, you can find. I, I don't think that's necessarily sanctioned by anyone, but I know that... Um, You know, open free software lawyers have looked quite closely at it and say it would stand up in court. Um, and this is a viable means to do that. And not only that, not only is the LGPL really flexible, but the Free Software Foundation Europe says it's okay to sell exceptions. Mm -hmm. This is an okay thing. The important thing is that there's got to be an open source or a free software version somewhere. And even a permissive license is better than no open source license at all. So... Mm. 
I mean, that's, that's really quite flexible, mm. though, I think. Mm. I mean, I think it's very generous. Yeah. And it really shows that the intention is to make sure that free software is open and available and widely used, as opposed to, say, this kind of thing where we're going to tell you what you have to do with your device, or it's viral, or, or that it, you know, somehow we're going to take people's IP. It's not that at all. <laughs> But if you say, with your device, you mean with the, with the producer of the device, not the right. user of the device. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Because I see it like if I buy some device, it's mine. Right. And yeah, I get that Apple doesn't see it no, <laughs> like that. No, they don't see it that way. Or TV or whoever. But yeah. 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 I guess it's a difference in our opinions. I think so. <laughs> But uh, the permissive licenses you mentioned, it's like MIT, BSD, right. and so on, right. which let you basically do whatever you want. Pretty almost. much. I mean, they, they are all permissive, let's put it that way. But they, they're permissive in different ways. Um, it's not a nasty thing to be permissive. Um, Permissive licenses, though, they don't have copyleft, which is the power to make sure that, you know, uh, copyright stays with the work itself, which is very powerful. That, that has a, a great, you know, gives you great opportunities, not just in business, but it gives you a lot of software freedom if the copyright stays with the work. In permissive licenses, you don't get that, that power. You just get this license to go with the software, but the copyright is not transferred to you. Hmm. Um, so, What do you mean by so that? So that makes it weaker. Well, it, it just means like... I don't have the copyright, so I can't distribute this software anymore. Okay, okay. But what I can do is take it and make a, a product out of it and sell that product. Okay. Any changes I make, I have to send back. But Do you really? Why? In, in the MIT license, no. MIT is just pretty much a free-for-all. Okay. It's, it's one step above the public domain, yeah. which is like saying, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. I have no <laughs> idea what this software is. It does, and I'll leave it in the public domain. Yeah. And, but public domain, people don't want that because even if you explicitly disclaim your right to copyright, you can come back and claim it later. Okay. So public domain software is tricky. Yeah. MIT is good because it's not public domain, but it's roughly the same. It says you have the right to do whatever you want with this software, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Then we get to the other permissive license like Apache 2 and Mozilla public license, which are a little bit better because they have patent protection inside there that you can't make patent claims against them. Okay. So these are really great licenses. I so, think. so is it uh, like if I find some software which has been done before with mm -hmm. this license then uh, no i can show that no you can't do this patent because uh, there is already a software and this it gets a little bit more complicated and i'm gonna before i say something stupid i would think that we'd we'd need to take a look and maybe even talk with the patent lawyer but what it really does is gives you a sort of patent protection it creates this kind of patent pool if oh, you're going to go and use apache web server under the apache license yeah. um and then somebody files a, a a lawsuit a patent infringement lawsuit against apache and says you stole my patent well okay. guess what immediately you lose the right to use the apache web server oh, i see yeah. so it's going to be really difficult for you to go and use the apache software and then claim that it's taken your your patents that's just not going to work But, uh, you know, Apache is widely used throughout Android. So, obviously, Google thinks that it, that offers good patent protection. And yeah. So, yeah. it's a good license. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. So, which, which, <laughs> which one is more free, basically? Yeah. GPL or, or like, 
licenses like uh, GPL or licenses like MIT, BSD, and so on, which yeah, are more primitive. <laughs> people argue about that all the time. It's basically it's like they say, oh, GPL's no good. I want complete, not afraid to do whatever I want. But I, I don't think that's true because the GPL provides freedoms not just for yourself, exactly. but it extends those freedoms to your users, yeah. to everyone. And that's what's really important. Mm. You know, freedom is meaningless if somebody can take it away from you trivially. Exactly. You've got to ensure it remains. I, in, as, I, as I see it, MIT BSD has more freedom for the developer, but GPL has more freedom for the user, which I care a lot more about than the developer. But obviously, I also understand that uh, other developers don't think like me. Yeah. <laughs> They think, I want to do stuff with, if I'm doing the work, I need the freedoms, not my users. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my position too. I think the same way you do. Yeah. So... Some time ago we talked about, or at least I heard you talking about, uh, if, you, if, if you see someone uh, violating the GPL, then you as a user can't sue them. You have to get, or how, yeah. how does it work? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, um, I can't run around saying, oh, I heard this company's violating the GPL on a mailing list. Um, I'm going to sue them. Mm-hmm. You don't have standing. You have to have standing. And what that means is that, you know, you, somebody has to have done something wrong to you. Mm -hmm. And if they've done something wrong to you by violating your copyright, because your copyright is in Linux, they're using Linux, Linux under the GPL, you said they could use it under the GPL, but then they're breaking the GPL license. Okay. Then you can go and say, hey, wait a second, you're breaking the license I gave you, and then you have standing to go to court. You also have that if you say buy a phone, and the phone has had has your copyright software in there. Or even if you're just an end user of the mm -hmm. phone. I own this phone. Um, you were supposed to release the software with me, with the phone. You didn't do that. I can take you to court. Um, obviously, many users don't do that. And the only people who really care about that often are, are software developers who's ha who've had their software used contrary to the license they planned. So it's, it's very hard to get uh, a reaction to that. And, and at the most recent FOSDEM I've heard, people like uh, Bradley Kuhn say that more than ever, GPL is being violated. Mm -hmm. But that's probably because more than ever, it's being used. It's used, yes. So, <laughs> so, so what, what can you do as a user? Can you do... It's actually quite tough. There, there was a time uh, when the software Freedom Conservancy used uh, some GPL software, BusyBox, to try and ensure that um, embedded device makers or people who use BusyBox comply with the GPL. Mm -hmm. And that became tricky and a little bit contentious. And I think we backed off a little bit that kind of stance. I think now there's a community uh, compliance process so that the people who write the GPL, Free Software Foundation, and the Software Freedom Conservancy really try and explain what they think is the best way to uh, release a product mm -hmm. and comply with the license. And there are times when the Free Software Foundation will get in contact with companies to tell them, look, we think you're violating the GPL. Could you please change? Um, but usually lawsuits are the ultimately last resort. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's really no interest in filing lawsuits. Money is never the issue. It's always about software freedom. Yeah. So it, it really is uncommon that it goes to court. And what an individual user can do is, is really probably limited. You can certainly contact uh, 
the Free Software Foundation. They have mm-hmm. a compliance mailing list. And you can also contact this group called GPLviolations.org. Okay. But um, in neither case, you know, nothing's going to happen overnight. And no, no, obviously. You, you may want to contact the company yourself mm. and things like that, you know. I mean, that's what I'd do. I'd encourage people to say, look, I'm a customer. You're using the GPL. Um, I would like you to comply with it. I've, I've seen screenshots or like pictures of BMW, uh, this this IHU units where 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 it said, yeah, if you want to, to get the the code, just write an email to blah 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 at mm-hmm. BMW dot I guess. <laughs> And apparently they sent you a CD or something. Yeah, with all the code. So. Or I guess you won't still won't be able to to change it and run it on your BMW. But at least you can look what software they use and how yeah. how, how they work. <laughs> yeah, and BMW actually, um, well, their car IT group is on GitHub, so they have a ton of software on GitHub. Mm. So yeah, they're they actually really get open source. I think BMW. That's good. Many of the car companies actually are really pretty good about it. Mm. Oh yeah, perhaps we should mention that we work in the. <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> we don't work for BMW, no. <laughs> but we do work in uh, in the car industry, making automotive software. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, apropos making money with yeah free software or at least open who's software. figured that out? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Because we we were really working a company which makes yeah which which has it on on the front page we do open source we exactly and we still are a company yeah and obviously in in the last five seven years many many companies got into the boat mm-hmm. now even Microsoft is releasing tons of stuff on on GitHub. I've, the whole .NET uh, framework yeah. and uh, and so on. It's it's really amazing. So it is amazing. So how? I mean, we uh, I have this list from Wikipedia, which is about how uh, yeah, what was it called? Yeah, something like how to make business models right. for open so- source software. Right. So perhaps we could just go through it and just just talk, sh- shot uh, sh- yeah something sort. Do a licensing, which would be that you have your stuff as uh, under the GPL, but if someone wants to have it uh, under some commercial license, you could sell them yep. this to them, and then they could use it like any other uh, any other commercial, commercial software. Yep, that I think is quite effective. I think it's pretty popular and I think that's uh, a lot of companies are very comfortable with that both buying and selling that way. That's in my opinion for open source from from the open source view of the world this mm-hmm. works really well. I think so too. But from the free software <laughs> point of well, view in my, uh, that's just how I perhaps I didn't think enough about it or anything but I think if I'm making uh, software. I write mm. in code, and I get other people to 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 join me in writing this code, mm-hmm. and then we uh, we we decide to make it GPL, so the the users get the freedom mm-hmm. they deserve, and then I relicense it to someone who 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 just 
doesn't give the freedoms to those users. Right, right. That's I still am quite uncomfortable with it. Mm. No, I I agree with you. I think that um, that's a bit problematic, but I I still think that hmm. you know one of the powers of open source or free software, let's say, is that it's non-discriminatory. Mm-hmm. It does. It says you can use the software for whatever purpose, including making money. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely legitimate use. And in fact, I think that these free software, the GPL, was really designed for businesses. Mm. Um, so I still think it fits with the free software ethos. Let's take a project, let's say, mm-hmm. like Samba. Mm-hmm. You know, that works with uh, Microsoft systems. Um, but it's GPL v3. So if they go ahead and make this awesome GPLv3 software, which any individual can download and use to connect their Linux system to a Microsoft system, but they sell licenses for it so you can use it commercially, I don't see what the problem is. You can still get the software for free as an individual, but if you buy this license, now you can use it commercially and and lock your head unit. But all the changes. But all the changes they do to will not come back. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. But and you still can't as a user. You still can't refresh the device and blah blah blah. No, you can't. So all those freedoms are uh, suddenly gone. They are. But what's happened is that many of those freedoms are captured back in the software itself. In other words, you know, Samba first of all has to be good enough for somebody to want to pay money for it. Sure. So there's that. So that there's been a lot of investment of time and effort in it. Okay. Yeah. And it's good working software. And if you're going to charge money for it, there has to be a reason somebody's willing to pay money. And probably it, it's because it's higher quality. Mm-hmm. It's known commodity. You get better support. There are a bunch of other things that are probably very valuable to businesses. And the odds that you know somebody's going to take Samba and change those change the software significantly and then lock those changes up are pretty slim. They're most likely going to, in that case, use it for free and make sure the modifications go up and are maintained by somebody else, just okay. like the Linux kernel. Okay. Because yeah. you don't want to be having to maintain this Samba software. No. That's ridiculously I, expensive. It's it's a liability all of a sudden. I guess it depends on how big this software is. If it's a sm- Absolutely. small thingy, then you can just modify it and do whatever you want. With exactly. It. And then, yet yeah, it's a loss. But mostly, like you say, with Linux kernel, you want you don't want this stuff lying around exactly at your office somewhere. No. You want it to to to, to be hassle free, exactly upstream. That is true. Yeah. And if you look at like we just saw Daniel Stanberg's talk on curl. I mean, mm-hmm. he's used software. He says in billions of devices. Mm. And he doesn't make any money from that, you know. <laughs> he still has to have no. a regular job. I yeah. mean, he has a great job, but he works at Mozilla. Yeah, he works at Mozilla. That's cool. But, but that's a relatively small system. In other words, uh, f- the developers that work on Curl can manage it. It's not a huge project yeah. like Linux, which hundreds and hundreds of developers work on. Um, and I think it's permissively licensed. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I don't think. I don't think there are that many changes. I don't think that there's anything really that happens to curl uh, that not everybody is going to be able to get. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, and I think you raise a very important issue, but I don't know how big, Hmm. and nobody knows how big the changes are behind the corporate firewall. That is true. For me, it's mostly like a, a principle thing. Yeah. And not, I don't see it practically. I guess it's it's not much they can change, which will be super duper for for us. Exactly. 
because if they can do it, we can do it also. Exactly. It's not a real. Pro it's not a real problem. It's just a problem in like it's out of principle. I yeah. think it's wrong, and it's mo mostly a feeling. I can't. Yeah. I can't point with a finger what yeah. what it is exactly what what bothers me. No, I agree. And, and I feel the same way you do. I think it is an important principle issue. But on the other hand, free software programmers need to eat. Mm. I mean, it's not unfair to give them good jobs with good pay in ethical conditions. And as long as you have ethical business practices, um, why shouldn't somebody be paying for a free software license? I think that's a great idea. I think it's a, an effective idea. So I look at it that way. I look mm. at it like, wow, we're, we're putting free software developers to work, giving them good jobs. I think that's very cool. Mm, nice. Okay, the next one is selling professional services, which is, I guess, the easiest one to yeah. to understand. Like Red Hat's model, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. So they they give you Linux in, in a nice package, mm -hmm. and and they look that everything works together, and you pay them for that. Right. And they've moved a little bit more to software as a service, I think. Many of those companies, because the you bake the professional service into the good, you know. If you're guess, a web it, server, yeah. I guess even Microsoft does it mm -hmm. because they sure they release a lot of stuff be, just because they they sell you the uh, the services instead mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Like what is it called Asana or something? Uh, yeah, there's Azure. Azure, yeah. Yep, their cloud service, yeah. Exactly. So that seems to work quite well for them. I think I they heard, make a lot of money on it. And I heard that. only good stuff about it. People talk very highly of it. Yeah. yeah. Even the, most people even say it's better than uh, AWS oh, really? and so on. So, That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so the next one is selling off branded merchandise. <laughs> well, if if you think about it, I think this is actually really cr quite clever. the The value of a lot of free software or FOSS in general tends to accrue lower in in the stack. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're not going to see a lot of free software GUIs and. Uh, Graphical tools uh, or, or graphics drivers are not open. and mm. So we haven't seen a lot at, say, the top of the stack. Yeah. But way down where the silicon and the software meet, that's huge benefit. So if you build devices, free software is hugely beneficial to you. So if you look yeah. at it that way, if I can make you know a tablet or a phone completely free software and sell it, I'm saving myself a ton of money. So this, I think, is a good model. But that's... Is it branded merchandise? I yeah, I mean, in one way it is. I mean, this phone is made by LG, for example. Yeah. But, you know, a thousand subcontractors have worked on it in different companies. And so they get the chip from, let's say, MediaTek, or they get the sock from somebody else. So in the end, all it is is just LG putting its brand on it by saying, we've integrated all these little parts from all over the world. Mm. But don't, doesn't merchandise mean more Do they like, mean selling T-shirts? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if that's what they mean, then I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> then the next one is selling of certificates and trademark use. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting approach. I don't like that very much. No, I mean, neither. I guess it's Canonical who kind of do something yeah. like that. What Canonical do is they take Debian packages... They compile them again, and they change the name of the deb package to add Ubuntu, and that puts their trademark on it. Mm. So you could or have Apache 2.24, and then you, the Ubuntu compiles it again, calls Apache 2.24-Ubuntu.deb. <laughs> okay, and now I can't use it because it's got the Ubuntu trademark on it. 
That's not cool. All they did was compile it. Something like, I think people have measured, and they say something like 79% of Ubuntu is stock Debian testing. Obviously, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. I I mean, you would expect that. So they're only adding a small bit, and then to slap your trademark on all of that, I don't know how nice nice that is. But but I don't think that's what they mean here in Wikipedia. I think it's more like that... Yeah, trade trademark use. So, so if you mm. if you want to to if they say if Ubuntu would sell the, a phone and right. you want to sell earphones for that or right. whatever, and you want to have the little Ubuntu logo on it, works with Ubuntu. Yeah, exactly. So I guess that's something like that. Yep. trademark use. I think so. Okay, selling software as a service. Didn't we have that? Oh, yeah, selling professional services and then okay. software as a service. Yeah, I think those two go together, but they are different SaaS. Yeah. Software as a service. Yeah, but then uh, professional services is just mostly like what what we at Pelachi could do sometimes. I think so, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, you want to do, to have some software which mm-hmm. will be open source later on, mm-hmm. so we can write it for you. Yep. Yeah. Collabora will do that with GStreamer, for example, yeah. or, or LibreOffice. There are a lot of companies that will do that. Yep. Yeah. Partnership with funding organizations. That's also something we do. You know, I mean... Geneva and AGL, they fund software to be developed for them. In fact, the Linux Foundation has a host of these alliances and organizations, and you can go work there and uh, often get paid to do statement of work projects mm. to add something. So, yeah, that's that's pretty big, I think. Mm. Is it also like what the, what Google does with the Google Code Summer or something like that? Summer of Code, I think they give to students almost exclusively, um, and they fund them a really great summer job you know you get like i guess you get five thousand dollars or something i don't know exactly but all, all, but all I don't of think the, it's quite code the same. is then open source isn't yeah. It? yeah yep so that's uh, yeah that's the way to definitely that's an excellent model and i I'd, I'd really think that there's a future in that model um it'd be really cool to to investigate that more. i guess mozilla does that does the same i pretty much know a couple of people who made like a summer mm-hmm they got paid by Mozilla, coded for Mozilla, and then everything was open source. Yeah. The I don't think you can run a company that way. No, no. But I do <laughs> no, but, think you can get like some funding good organization. jobs. Absolutely. Like Mozilla is a funding organization. They get funds and then they distribute it somehow. Exactly. And then we get the benefits of it, we as the users. Mm-hmm. Which is super cool. It is super cool. Okay, voluntary donations... And we've seen with Daniel Steinberg, he says that he yeah. gets very few. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a dead horse. Yeah, that's a dead horse. <laughs> Bounty-driven development. This, I think, is really interesting, especially if you start talking about things like the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So imagine that I had a system uh, where we would file bugs. So mm-hmm. I throw open my bug tracker, and I've got like 400 open bugs because yeah. I'm building this thing. Or you go through Debian, and they got 10,000 open bugs. Imagine if... We had um, an electronic ledger that would send you a little bit of Bitcoin every time you closed a bug. And then we could rank these bugs based on their value 
to being fixed. So a big company like Spotify, let's say, who runs 5,000 Debian servers apparently, and they're like, oh, we're stuck with this one bug. We can't link our systems together. If we could get this fixed, that would be amazing for us. And for us, that's worth 1,000 euros. So they go into the Debian bug tracker, put bug 575, 1,000 euros in Bitcoin, and anybody can fix that bug, claim the Bitcoin when they close the bug. I think we could fund massive projects that way. I guess so too, yeah. I really think we could. I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. I think that the prices should probably be higher so that you can make a living doing this. But there's also HackerOne that does this. They put out bug bounties. You can go to HackerOne, get a HackerOne account, and then claim bounties there. And I think that definitely is the future of the model, at least for free software. So this HackerOne thing, it's a website yep. where everybody who has bugs can yep. go to and tell... Uh, it, exactly. In one direction, companies come, okay. and they say they have a bounty for this. If you can find an exploit for this product we have in the market, we will give you this much money. And then hackers come in there and say, hmm, okay, that's worth it. And that's good because what you're doing is you're preemptively taking a hack yeah. or a potential zero day off the market. Yeah, yeah. Because if you find a good zero day, you can sell that for millions. <laughs> so, <laughs> literally. That is true. It's much cheaper to do it. Exactly. This way. <laughs> so, for companies, it's much cheaper to do it this way. And I think software development in general can could benefit that way. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I guess uh, on the Stack Overflow, you have such a bounty program, but you don't get money. You get like karma. Karma. Yeah. And then I saw on GitHub. Uh, that they introduced this also. I don't know, oh, really? who, but without money, obviously, yeah. again. But I guess some some karma thing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't quite see exactly I, what that is. I think it would be really cool if we could link those gamification systems together, whereby you could like sort of swap out. If if likes on Facebook, if hearts <laughs> on Twitter, mm-hmm. if uh, those little GitHub icons showing you've committed, if all those became a currency that you could trade between them and you could collect them and change that for, say, actual currency that you could use in your day-to-day, I think so, that'd be really cool. I guess, have you heard about uh, Flutter? Yeah, I've heard of Flutter. So, so Flutter kind of does yeah. something like that. So every time I listen to a podcast, it automat- my podcast client automatically... Uh, uh, flatters it oh, really? with my account. So every time I do a like on Instagram, mm-hmm. it flatters that person. Every time I do a like on Facebook, wherever, uh, wherever I connected it, it flatters the, that person. So so that person gets my money. That's really cool. It's not much, check that out. It's not a lot of money, and sadly, it's. Not not many use it. Yeah. So so see that's the thing. It would have to be much more widely used, exactly, yeah. or we connect it to a system, um, systems that are already widely used. Yeah. But in free software, those systems are smaller. You know, I mean, the the Debian bug tracker is yeah. is massive repository of very valuable information. So I don't know. Yeah. So the next one is pre-order, crowds, crowdfunding, and reverse. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's like, there's actually a really cool Debian tablet now that's being crowdfunded. I think it's on Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great business model. They come out and they say, this tablet will not track you. It's all built with free software. Da-da-da. We've got Tor running. Da-da-da-da-da. And so you you pay. They've raised 16000 I think they want to raise Mm $150,000. Then they'll go to market and uh, you get a tablet and you've supported this project. And that's a a really interesting model, I think. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. So... Mm-hmm. 
I think that works. It didn't work for <laughs> I mean the Yola tablet that I wanted. <laughs> so I've been oh, burned. Yeah. Tell us about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's a really beautiful tablet, uh, I thought, and it was gonna be um on with the Sailfish OS and it's from the folks at Yola. Um, and they've done really, I think their, their phones are really great. I think they've done really great software work, but unfortunately, you know, they were doing this work with Foxconn in China and for whatever reason, they couldn't get the tablets produced. So they were forced to refund the money. So did you get the money back? I did. Yeah. The whole process was very good. Yolo was incredibly professional. They're a great company. Um, I'm just sad I didn't get my Sailfish tablet. That's all. Mm, Damn it. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, I had a Yola phone. Yeah, <laughs> until two weeks ago when uh, someone broke into my house and stole. No, <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah, we'll see if I get a new one because the, it, even with the phones, it's a bit uh, so-so because if you break the glass, you can't get a, a new glass for your phone. Oh, really? You have to buy a new phone. Oh, that's too because bad. The, or a new battery, you can't get a new battery or oh. anything. So it's nice that you can switch out the battery, but you can't buy a second battery. So mm. <laughs> I tried, but yeah. yeah, they are all sold out. So I don't <laughs> know. Fascinating. Advertising supported software. Bleh. Jesus Christ. If I have to <laughs> click another ad, I will kill myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Selling of optional proprietary extensions yeah that's like open core or something nginx mm. does that i don't like that either mm. nginx does it yeah oh. they they went to open core model as they call it okay where they have most of the projects open source but they add some stuff that's proprietary cute used to do that for example they add some uh, compilation optimization as a commercial add-on but now they're moving to push that into the open too which mm. i think is really cool so mm. cute's going in the opposite direction being much more open but some projects do that. They have a closed uh, proprietary extensions. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Selling of required proprietary parts of a software product. That I also think is nasty. That is really nasty. Yeah. Why is it on the list? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Relicensing under a proprietary license. That sounds a lot like dual licensing. Exactly. Yeah. But interesting. Or it, or it's perhaps what uh, what is it called? The guys uh, who did this, uh, and you're using uh, also the ser- the the media server. What is it called? Uh, Delenia? No, no, no. Damn it! Yeah, there's a media server, uh, Softsonic, oh. Subsonic, Subsonic. Exactly, yeah. Subsonic just went uh, from a GPL license to a closed license oh that's so uncool like two months ago or something oh man so yeah it's that for me <laughs> right and you've been writing a client for it no oh. no i've been writing the server so i'm oh, re- okay. i'm writing a, a, a competitor exactly. exactly but which only works with uh, with audio not video because they do podcasts video yeah. audio whatever and it's a big big java blob <laughs> and it's so slow on my raspberry by one that I try to replace it with a with a Go program with a much smaller one. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'll have to play with that. That sounds fun. Obscurification of source code. That's just also nasty. Yeah. Why is it <laughs> again? Yeah, why know. is it on the list? <laughs> I don't know why it's on the list. And delayed open sourcing. That could be okay. I it guess. could be okay. It it really is. 
that that really is the case with a lot of things today. You know, if you go into if you're going to work for a big company uh, developing hardware, for example, um, often you're going to make all the software and then release it. Mm. You don't have to release anything as open source until you distribute. Yeah. So, you know, it might be years before the product gets to market. Mm. So, I mean, this seems perfectly okay. I don't know why you would call it delayed open sourcing. It's just I guess regular it's like, open sourcing. I guess it's like uh, Android. So Very similar. Google gives it uh, as a binary thingy to you mm-hmm. and then a bit later you get also the source code. Exactly. You, you know, Apple does the same thing, for example. They go to yeah. Samsung. They say, we want you to develop this awesome uh, chip that does all these fancy things with specification we want you to do it for us and we'll pay you all this money for it but in exchange you cannot go ahead and make these chips for somebody else until our product is in the market and samsung gets a ton of money and of course they're going to do that and then later they go and build their own product based on those those chips but apple gets the the market first those chips are are, are this this chip design is it apples or is it some well this was just an example but apple does fabricate its own chips okay okay. but they do buy chips from samsung too okay yeah cool or have in the past yeah yeah that was the list from wikipedia that was interesting interesting it's really cool so i have a last point on my list here cool i have a friend who who uses a lot of open source software hmm. and he, he kind of likes the idea but at the same time he is uh, he is a programmer mm-hmm. who wants to write end user software like for mobile phones or desktop and so on and so he doesn't uh, and he wants to get paid somehow of course <laughs> so he he struggles to find a way to open source his uh, his programs because mm. he does a lot of for the iPhone it's quite easy you you make to to make closed source software mm-hmm. because you write it you put it on the app store and people buy it and you get the money or mm-hmm. not uh, exactly however but how what could he do like even with with desktop software it's mm-hmm. it's easy to get like make a paypal account or something and people mm-hmm. buy you your software but it, he feels that because we've been obviously talking about it a lot and i tried to convince him and so on but he it's it's super difficult because <laughs> mm-hmm. he says as soon as i release the software as in whatever gpl or, or whatever mm-hmm. someone will just go and re, re- just do what what canonical does basically mm-hmm. just recompile it and sell it put a new uh, brand or, on it or something yeah, yeah exactly yeah that's tricky um it, it's very tricky and getting a trademark for it where you can sue those people uh is expensive mm. um, but that might be something he wants to look into if it's significant amounts of money that people are sort of stealing from him then i would say invest in a trademark you know, Ubuntu also has an app store. Mm. You may be able to distribute your app that way. That might be an option. Mm. Um, otherwise, I think on on vanilla desktop Linux, it's very difficult to sell desktop app, apps. Yeah, sure. But but even on on OS X and Windows, you, there are pe- tons of people selling good software. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't. Most that, that of the, difficult. M- most of the software isn't open source. Obviously. Yeah, and they, <laughs> I think they don't allow GPL in many cases. 
Yeah, that's in the App Store on on the phone. I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, on on OS X you can just you don't need the App oh, Store. OS X. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can just yeah. download it on the site and so on. I don't know how. I, I think it would be really tough. There are some companies like Omni. They have things like Omni Planner, and I think mm-hmm. Adobe maybe makes money on selling software on the desktop. But you know, aside from those large companies, I don't know a lot of companies that mm-hmm. sell. Uh, is successful there. I, I wish I could help him, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know what to say. Yeah, sadly. Sadly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if if the idea is good enough, of course, you can go to a backer and somebody might back you. Angel investors might back you. Uh, sure, yeah. But they wouldn't but you let you... Money. Yeah, they wouldn't let you to open source it nope. or code and then so on. So. No. so he does, he makes his money. That's not a, does he? Oh, n- good. not really an issue, but he doesn't want, he, he would like to... Oh, he doesn't to, want people stealing his... Yeah, yeah. So well, if, if he open source it, how, what, how could he open source it? I was thinking about like just parts of it, like, like open source libraries which you have written or something. Because yeah. he, he has written like a f- uh, web framework mm-hmm. in PHP, which he uses for, for all his customers and so on. This could be a way to, to, to give back to the open source community. Absolutely. And in fact, I think he might find that users might use it and report bugs. Exactly. And that might and be incredibly even fix valuable. bugs and so on. Yeah, that would definitely be the approach to go. I think that could be really effective. And if somebody were to take it and rebrand it, well, who cares? I mean, they're still using his software. That's more users. Is is he monetizing that web framework? No, he's probably monetizing something else. Exactly. He he, he uses this web framework to write software for his customers. Exactly. So, so yeah, that's a very smart way to do that. Mm. I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay, great. Cool. I Thank you very we, much, Richard. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. I really and, appreciate it. Uh, Good luck in the U.S. Thanks very much. (laughs) Uh, Good luck with your podcast. I look forward to listening to it. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Bye. Bye.